Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I think you probably have all seen the commercials. You're, you're watching TV, and suddenly, for me, one of these exciting commercials come on where you, they offer something like a 10-piece knife set for only $19.95. think, well, that's a pretty good deal. I could use another knife set. But wait, they take this knife, and they cut a muffler pipe with it. And then they slice a tomato right after that. And you're thinking, man, I mean, there are some days that I need to cut muffler pipes and tomatoes in the same day. And I could really use this. And, and, but, but wait, there's more. If you act now, we're going to include this beautiful cutting board. And you're thinking, ah, man, they have just sweetened the pop. That alone would make it a great deal. But there's more. That's right. Goes on to include a potato peeler, a paring knife, pots and pans, every single kitchen utensil you could possibly ever need, all for the incredible low price of $19.95. And what they're doing there, they're, they're slowly build on the original gift, and, and they got us to think, wow, that's great, what a great deal, but then, wait, there's more, and, and then more and more, and by the end, you're just saying, give us the address, man, give us the, the phone number that we can call. And my family will attest to the fact that I am a sucker for an infomercial. <laughs> I have a house that is full of things uh, that we don't use and as seen on TV. Well, folks, in a much more important and, and much more serious sense, as we have been following the life of Christ, a couple months ago we came to the Sermon of the Mount. And we've spent quite a bit of time in the beginning of the sermon, and we've been hitting some of the highlights of the sermon and the whole Sermon of the Mount has been building and building anticipation and interest from its listeners. And we're going to finish that sermon today. Christ's audience, we know, were men and women who were disenchanted with the, with the Pharisees, with the formalism of the religious world that they were living around them. You know, the lifelessness, the legalism, you know, all of those things, that unfulfillment that they were finding in their Judaism. And so Christ comes along, and he preaches a sermon. He's preached many sermons before this, and this is probably the longest sermon that we have of him that he preached. And he's focusing in this sermon on what a true relationship with God and what that experience of having a relationship with God is all about. Matter of fact, the crowd was so enamored by what he was saying. It says at the end of the sermon, we'll put these verses up here for you. In Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the sermon, it says, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I mean, suddenly, God had life. God's word had life. I mean, you remember, he, he kind of introduced the whole thing when in the series of blessings. You know, blessed are those he talked about mercy and being a peacemaker, having a purity of heart, having a meekness about us in our faith. Christ then took the laws that you know, they were so adhering to and had, had burdened them down, and he suddenly gave those laws meaning and purpose. He talked about joy in giving, fellowship with God in prayer. He talked about rewards of fasting, how to lay up, rewards, eternal rewards in heaven. Christ told them of God's love and care for all of their needs. 
warn them of the dangers of being judgmental to people around them. And finally, he comes and he talks about God and he says you need to ask, you need to seek, and you need to knock. And by the time you get to the end of this sermon, you and I, and I imagine the crowd, they're going, yes, this is what we've been missing. I mean, this is what we have been hoping for. This is what, you know, I mean, I've got to have this. This is what I've been looking for. Kind of like those the commercial building the suspense of God. Jesus kept adding on more and more of what true faith was until we get to the end of the sermon and we're supposed to be asking ourselves, how do we get this? How do we get this? How do we get this true life that Jesus Christ is talking about? How do we get that meaning and purpose? I mean, we live in a fallen, a broken world. How can we rise above that and live into the presence of an almighty God? And he gives them the answer at the end of the sermon. In chapter 7, we're going to be in verses 13 through 23. I'm going to ask you to turn there in your Bibles, and then I'll also ask you if you would stand together with me as we read God's Word. Jesus goes on, he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it, for the gate is small, And the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Or in your name cast out demons? Or in your name perform miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Let me be seated. So Christ sets forth two ways that a person can go, two choices that we've been given. Now, we live in a culture right now that says, no, there's many choices to many things. Even, even religion, even faith, even ways to get to heaven. I remember years ago, uh, Gwen Cross, I was talking to her, and she was, I can't remember what church she had gone to to visit, but she remembers the pastor standing up there and, you know, and says, getting to God and finding God is kind of like climbing a mountain. You know, we, you know, you're climbing up this way, and you're figuring out how to get there, and and you can only see your way, but you know, there's people on the other side of the mountain, they're climbing up a different way, and the other side, they're climbing up a different way, and as long as we get there to the top of the mountain. I mean, what a falseness. God makes it very, very clear that there is only one way to get to heaven. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small, And the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. 
He's speaking there about a narrow way and a broad way. One leads to life. The other leads us to destruction. And, and it's pretty easy. You don't have to be you know, a rocket scientist. No, it's pretty easy to figure out wh where these roads lead. I mean, you know, the narrow way, it leads to life, leads to heaven. The broad way leads to destruction, it leads to hell. But I want to tell you something about that broad way. That broad gate, that broad way, it's not marked. Follow this way, and it leads to hell. It leads to destroying your life. Matter of fact, my guess is that broad way is marked heaven. The problem is, it just doesn't get you there. It's the way of humanistic religion, with all the theses and the relativism. It's the way of self-made religion, you know, Jehovah Witness and Buddhists and Mormons and the Muslims. It's the road of good works, where we try to reason ourselves that, you know, I'm, I'm above the curve and, you know, God has scales and somehow if my good outweighs my bad, God will take me to heaven. It's the road of psychology, you know, therapy that's supposed to offer answers for people's problems. But I can remember some little over 30 years ago when I was taking my master's degree, I actually took a one-week course at Liberty University in psychology. And I got to tell you, in that week, I mean, it was like eight hours a day, you know, of classes, there were so many empty answers given to a person's problem. Hundreds and hundreds of highly educated men, doctorates, PhDs, all who have tossed aside, and offer God, tossed aside God and offered their solution to the problems. Matter of fact, it was so interesting that the teacher leading the class, he said, at that point, some 30 years ago, um, psychology wasn't in mainstream, and so insurance wouldn't cover you know, going to a counselor or a psychologist. And so... I, for most of the class, he's trying to convince us that we have got to get it mainstream so that it will be accepted, so insurances will pay for it, so more people will get in and start following this philosophy and everything. And then, and then somebody asked about the success rate of, of psychology. And again, I don't know what it is. I can just remember in the class. But he said the success rate of a person who goes to you know, a human psychologist, like man gives the answer to the problem. He says if they start it and take it all the way to its conclusion, who knows how many weeks, how many years in psychology, he said that 30% of those people say that it helped them some way, in some way or, or some form. 30% after years and years of classes in psychology. So there was a test at the end of this psychology course. It was a 65 um, question test, and they were all essay questions. You, know, you kind of had to write them out, not true and false. And number 65, I will never forget what it asked. It asked, what did you learn that will help you the most from this class? What will you learn that will help you the most from this class? And I gave the answer in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise... And the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? I figured at that point I could afford to get one wrong. If the professor didn't like the answer, I can't even remember uh, what I got for that. 
But, you know, there, there's so many ways. There's so many ways. It's such a broad way, such a broad gate that, that Satan allows us to come in on. You know, and, and, and I think that psychology stood out to me because the week before I had taken a one-week intensive on the book of Daniel and Revelation, and I mean, that the whole book is laying out God and Jesus Christ and God's answer to our sin problem. But again, all of these ways of man, they promise the moon. The problem is they're empty. And in the end, there's nothing but you know, death and destruction. The gate to get on this path is said to be wide. You know, so wide that you can get on it with all, without any conditions. You know, bring all your garbage. Bring all of your thoughts. We, we accept every opinion. Every opinion is valid. You know, we, we don't invalidate anything. All the baggage, all the stuff of your life. You get on that, you come through that gate, you get on this path, you can wander around. You know, mow your own, go at your own pace, go at your own speed, go wherever you want. Lollygag, take your time. Doesn't say it here, but I, I picture that the way is downhill. You know, it, it's easy. Come under your terms. You know, you think it ends up in heaven. But Christ makes it very, very clear. The problem is its destination and the destruction that it brings to our lives. He goes on, he talks about those who are selling the tickets to this way. You know, those who are making the noise and, and saying, come, come. In verse 15, he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Or excuse me, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree does not, that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. So how... How do you know if the way that, and what you are following right now, how do you know that it's the wrong way? How would you know if it's the right way? How do you know if it's the wrong way? Well, the way that you will know it is by the fruit of those who are peddling it. They're peddling a falsified fruit. It says you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? I mean, it's a real picture there. You know, you're reaching out to get that nice, juicy grape, and suddenly, you know, you get stuck in the finger because they promise something. But when you follow that way, the fruit, the result of that is an emptiness. I mean, they say you're number one in life. You're the most important thing in life. You know, that we need to look out for ourselves. Isn't that a broad way? You hear that everywhere today. And yet when one buys into that philosophy that I am the most important that I need to look out for myself first and foremost, you find that you are number one, and you are by yourself. You are lonely. You have broken relationships. There's a lot of deceit that goes into it. I mean, how can, how can a culture survive where everybody thinks that they are the most important, more important than the next person? They say, oh, things will make you happy. You know, just go out and buy some. Buy a new pair of shoes, buy another dress, you know, buy a car, you know, take that vacation, that'll make you happy. That'll, that'll help this, this yearning, this, this itch that you have inside you that, that something is wrong with your life. You know, but, 
when things we, we rest on things making us happy, so often we find we have shallow relationships, uneasiness because we never have enough, there's frustration, there's a discontent because you get that thing and like, it's like you've reached out and you've grabbed that juicy grape, but you know, six, uh, six months later, the new smell of the car is gone and you're just left to pay the bills and to take care of it. And in the end, it says, in verse 21, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many, and get that word, many. This is referencing back to the broad way, to the wide gate that many find. This many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Folks, these have got to be the scariest verses in all of Scripture. I mean, these are the verses that cause me to shudder that there are people that I know that right now that I can't see in their heart. There could even be people sitting here today who, you know, there's Lord, Lord, hey, we're here, we've come to church. But in the end, God says, I didn't know you. Depart from me. Folks, we're given one chance at this. We are given one life to, to figure this out. One life to, to realize from creation that there is a God, that there is something greater than us. We are given one life to find that and pursue that and to find that answer and come to the place to find that it's God Almighty. It's through his son, Jesus Christ. We are given one life for that. And if we're spending that life on selfishness, and we're spending that life on, you know, we're number one, or on philosophies of man, we come to an end. Can you imagine the end? And the Lord saying, depart from me. I never knew you. You see the, the deception of these false philosophies. They want to make you think it'll bring you happiness. They want you to think it'll lead you to heaven. You know, to the place where, Lord, Lord, look what we have done. But the problem is it's all a lie. It, it's all a deception. And, and you may wonder, as a Christian, you may wonder sitting here today, well, how can we know for sure? How can we recognize that we're not falling, following some false philosophy or false prophets? You know, probably one of the, the best visual illustrations, years ago I was reading a, a book called Classic Christianity by Bob George, and he used this illustration, and, and it just stuck with me. He said when a, when, a, when a teller at a bank, a new teller is hired, they're trained to figure out counterfeit money. But the way that they train them, they don't try to teach them all the ways that a person can counterfeit it. They don't teach them, you know, the... the, the false smells and the false sounds and, and false things that it looks like. They teach them how to be so familiar with the real thing that suddenly when they con come in contact with something that is false, there's a little thing that goes off in their brains that something's wrong with this. And that's how as we as Christians, that's how God is calling us here. That's why 
You know, places of worship are so important in Bible study and time in your word to become so familiar with the real thing that when we hear one of these false prophets out there or some commercial promising happiness, that there's a little, you know, light goes off in our head that says there's something wrong with this. Again, back to verse 14. It says, For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. It says there's a gate. There is a way that leads to a path. That path that we've been talking about. That path that Jesus has been preaching about. The blessings he's been talking about. The purpose, the fellowship, the relationship with God. There's a way to get there. So the gate is narrow. You know, the, the, the way is narrow, but there is a way. There are not many ways, but there is one way. Christ would later on in his ministry, he would say in John chapter 10, verse 7 through 10, says, so Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and that you might have it abundantly. Again, he would say in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's narrow. That gate is narrow. I'm glad it's narrow. I'm glad there are not a lot of options out there. I'm glad he's made it so specific that we know the way that it's through Jesus Christ. You see, Christ didn't just come when he was born and when he suddenly began his public ministry. He didn't just offer a rosy theory on how to live and, and how to find purpose. He didn't just say, hey, you know, this is what you need to do to be fulfilled and find happiness. And then go away and just leave us to figure it out ourselves. Christ did something that made him the gate. Jesus did something that made him the way to peace and to joy and to purpose. He saw sinful men. He saw you and I. He saw us groping through this life. Struggling with our thoughts and our intentions and our hearts and our emotions and our actions. The decisions that we make. And Jesus, he loved us even while we were yet sinners, even while we were messing up, even while we were failing. Christ gave up the glories of heaven to come down to this earth to reach man. He went to the cross. He suffered and he died. He shed his blood as a payment for your sin, for my sin. He satisfied the judgment of our sin. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. It says, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Having been offered once to bear the sins of many. He didn't just give you a rosy philosophy, but God followed through with his son Jesus Christ. To be a payment for all of our sin, past, present, future, doesn't matter what it is that we have done, Jesus Christ has become the payment. Well, how do you, 
how do we get this life that God has been proclaiming? How do we get it? How do you, you know, you get these, these blessings that he talks about, this purpose, you know, real relationship versus, you know, just living a facade, hypocrisy in our lives? How do we get to the place that we ask and seek and knock? Well, we do that first, we enter through the gate. And that gate is the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man Jesus Christ. We do that by confessing our own sinfulness to realize that in and of ourselves there's nothing that we can do to pay the penalty for our sins, but that God has done that only through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the gate. You don't get any farther if you don't go through that gate. It doesn't ask us to have a you know, good feeling about Jesus or good feeling about Christianity or even be favorably disposed about you know, the, the conservatism of Christianity. That's not the gate. The gate is Jesus Christ. It is his life, his death for your death, his payment for a payment that you and I owe. And that's the gate. That's the only gate we, re we, we enter through. He sacrificed, he gave himself as a substitute for our sin. Then he resurrected to new life. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus Christ. He is that road. He is that way that God says will ultimately bring us to heaven. Probably one of my favorite verses, and I know I quote it often here in the church service, but it's Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Where Paul is speaking, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And, and you know, the Lord brought that verse back to my mind this past week because as I was looking at this, it, it really dawns on me that Christ did not die. He didn't give his life and then resurrect to new life to help me live my life. He died, he gave his life, that he might live his life through me. And there's a big difference. That is the way, that is the path. You know, to follow Christ, to live his life in us. And I, you know, we're coming to the end of this, this powerful sermon that Christ has given. And in the end, it, you know, Christ is calling for action. He's given us an opportunity to choose. This morning, uh, we prayed for this service. The elders met, and one of the things we prayed for is that if there was anyone here today who isn't sure that that's the gate that they've gone through, Jesus Christ, or even those who maybe have gone through that gate, but you, you've lost your way in that path that we're supposed to be following, you know, this is the day, this is the time right now. If you are feeling that you have not made that decision, it is too important for you to leave here without making that decision for Christ. Nothing is guaranteed. Tomorrow is not guaranteed for us. We only have this chance, this life. And today is the opportunity for you to accept Christ as your Savior, or to get back on track in the way that he wants you to live your Christian faith. And in just a moment, I'm going to pray for us. If you would like to pray with me, if you would like to talk with me after the service, I would invite you after... You know, the songs are being sung. I'm going to be up here. If you would like to come up, if you would like to talk, if you would like to pray, I certainly would welcome that. You know, about anything that we have talked about in the message here. 
to be saved or to, to recommit your life to Christ. But again, folks, this is way too important. This is way too important to leave to another day, to a, a better day, to a day when it's more convenient. If Christ is stirring your heart, don't let Satan steal that seed that he's planted there. So, Father God, I ask you to search us as only you can. God, I give you permission to lay us bare before you, to see our hearts, for us to see the needs of our life. Father, I can't imagine that there is any Christian here right now that feels that we have fallen short, we struggle. And so, Lord, I just take this time right now to, to recommit to you. Father, to recommit to your kingdom, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these other things in my life. Father, help me to get this right in my life, to follow that way. And God, I pray for anyone here, no matter how long they've been in church, whether this is their first time or, you know, thousandth time, Lord, if they look at their heart and they are not positive that it is the only way, Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins, that we have opened our heart and I've accepted that personally. If there's anyone here who has any doubts, right now, Lord, they'd open their heart to you. And very simply where they're seated to pray, Lord, I see myself as a sinner. I see the need that I have. And Father, I come to you now. I ask your forgiveness. I repent, I turn, Lord, from the way I was going, Father, to walk through the gate that you have provided through the cross. I accept you, Father, as my Savior, and I accept you, Father, as my Lord. God, I thank you if, if that has happened to anybody here, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to declare, declare ourselves to one another. Father, we're a church family, and we're here to help hold one another accountable to encourage decisions and actions that we're making in our faith. So help us to be bold, Father, when we have need, to be able to reach out to other people around us that we might find help and encouragement as they point us to your word. Thank you, Father. In thy son's name we pray.